Hello, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast hosted by a couple of your favorite friends from Philadelphia. I'm Sam, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Connor and Dave. Christine is out backpacking somewhere, who got, who knows, somewhere <laughs> on God's green earth, but where to pinpoint, I, I couldn't even tell you. I hope Christine is having fun and enjoying her time. Um, I am excited for our movie choice tonight. It's one that we didn't get to during our desert theme before we took our break, but it's one that, given some recent hubbub and some recent releases, felt it necessary to return to. But before we dive in, co-hosts, how are you doing? Have you seen anything cool lately? I'm doing all right, Uh, but there is a tragedy, an entertainment tragedy about to befall the Feeney household. Uh, Criminal Minds is leaving Netflix on June 29th, or June 30th, I guess it leaves. June 29th is the last day that one of my favorite shows to watch while eating dinner and just having on in the background will be leaving Netflix because the greedy bastards at CBS Viacom are moving it to Paramount+. Plus. I'm tempted to give Paramount+, Plus at least a trial, because I want to watch the hilariously terrible Halo TV show that I just hear is the worst. And so out of morbid curiosity, I might get it for like a trial run. And then in that time, just cram it as much criminal minds goodness as possible. But if they do, there's rumors of a revival season that I assume will be exclusive to Paramount Plus. So then that's a real dilemma because I don't know what, what I would do then. But no, I've not been watching much new, but I did. Um, I, I am enjoying the final days of Stranger Things. Of, um, Stranger Things, God. Where is my head at today? The final things of the days of Criminal Minds on Netflix. Um, last night, my roommate went on. My roommate and I went on a hot girl walk, and uh, you know, when people have their doors open and their windows open, and you can see into their house, I'm looking. You know, it's my God given right. I'm required by law to look into a person's home, and our neighbors were watching Criminal Minds, and I was like, "Getting it in, getting it in before you can't anymore." Respect. <laughs> There might be a law about not looking into other people's homes. I don't know about what required. <laughs> That's the first Who's time I'm hearing. Who's to say? Who's reading <laughs> to say these days? Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but <laughs> uh, I I also uh, went ahead and, and did sign up for a trial subscription of something uh, in the hopes that I would just be able to take full advantage of it and then uh, and then totally back out of my uh, hypothetical commitment uh, with the streaming service. But then I forgot, so now I uh, am subscribed to Shutter, uh, which is a cool service. It's got a lot of really neat features and uh, a lot of really cool original programming that I've been able to check out uh, before, and uh, we'll look forward to rechecking out now stuff like uh, Cursed Films and some other really interesting material surrounding horror and thrillers and uh, paranormal films, things of that nature. But I did get it specifically to watch uh, director and uh, stop-motion legend phil tippett's uh mad god uh which just came out well it premiered last year but it just got streaming uh exclusively through shutter this year and it was uh quite surreal i'm looking forward to watching it again because my first take on it uh was a little bit underwhelmed but at the same time uh it's largely stop motion it features some of the most like impressive set design that I've seen within any movie as far as attention to detail and knowing that it was all physically sculpted and built and crafted uh, by so many like 
careful and tenacious and focused hands. It really, really makes it very tactile, really engrossing and really interesting, uh, albeit with a pretty loose narrative structure just kind of built around themes or a theme. Interesting flick. Uh, if you do sign up for Shudder uh, for their seven-day free trial, be sure to check it out. And then, uh, unlike me, remember to cancel your subscription if that uh, is the route you want to go. Uh, but Shudder is cool also, so kind of a win. Yeah, that's like a streaming. I have a yearly subscription, which I think I use occasionally, but I, they're probably owned by some evil, terrible mega corporation. But as far <laughs> as I'm aware, they're, they're good people to give money to, at least for the, the service that they curate. But like I said, they're probably owned by the greedy bastards at CBS Viacom who just take criminal minds away from me whenever they can. You are really hurt by this. There was definitely someone that was like, hey, no, Connor Feeney, he's had like, you know, like an an okay month or two. Let's get him where it really hurts. Yeah, let's get it in the months where it's going to be super hot and I don't really want to go outside a lot. Let's just not not when it's like, you know, nice weather out and I'm more encouraged to go outside. No, let's let's take this away when I want to stay indoors. Son of a bitches. Um, Well, I have not really watched anything. Uh, Like I briefly mentioned uh, going on hot girl walks. I've done that a few times trying to get outside a little bit more often after being sick for so long. I'm like, I cannot look at my home any longer. So getting back out, a lot of dogs I'm seeing. There's always a theme of our walks. So it's, it's been kind of fun to do something other than watch TV. But, all right, we've got Criminal Minds, we've got Shudder, we've got <coughs> Being Outdoors. Don't know what a good transition there is to the, the movie of this week, uh, other than um, it's something that I love, just like my co-hosts, just like Being Outside, um, and that is Star Wars A New Hope, Episode 4. So, like I mentioned beforehand, this was supposed to be a part of our desert theme, but it just never really happened. But still, it's a, it's a crucial, critical, lovable, enjoyable film that means a lot to uh, a few of us here. And with my Princess Leia tattoo and with Kenobi just coming out, um, feels like it's it's the time to discuss this movie. So um, in case you've been living under a rock since 1977, um, this movie was written and directed by George Lucas, stars Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, Alec Guinness, and Peter Mayhew, as well as many, many others. This movie had a budget of $11 million. Box office, I when I made these notes, I do not remember if I adjusted for inflation or whatever, um, but it says... million. That is a pretty penny. So synopsis, good God, you know it. Um, What I really wanted to talk about tonight, uh, other than just the movie in general, is Luke as a character, recent retconning that's been happening, and then what really makes the Star Wars legacy. Um, And then anything else we feel needed, necessary to chat about. So um, I brought up Luke um, because, you know, Luke Skywalker, one of the Kenobi spoilers, maybe. I haven't finished it yet. I won't say anything that would spoil anything you haven't seen already. So Luke Skywalker is one of the most iconic characters uh, to ever exist, right? 
And something that like, like he's just a lovable guy. You, you watch him through all of these, the, the, the original trilogy, watch him grow, become a Jedi, really take on his dad and, and find comfort and healing in that relationship. And at the very end, um, but in the, the sequel trilogy, something that I've seen a lot of is people saying that Ray, a character very, very similar to Luke, goes on a very similar journey, is a bit of a Mary Sue. Now, a Mary Sue, the definition online is a character seen as too perfect, almost boring, reflects an idealized version of an author in fiction or fan fiction. Calling Ray a Mary Sue isn't fair. But if you're going to tackle her, saddle her with this title, I think the same is fair of Luke. And I'm wondering if if that's a fair assessment, if if we can throw around Mary Sue at all. Um, what do you think about Luke as a character? Well, Mark Hamill is uh, uh, a darling in these movies, uh, as he so often is, uh, really brings an interesting degree of like a kind of like boyish naivete in in this film in particular, uh, but then really you can really chart his progression not only obviously as a character but as an actor through these three films and really centering himself in uh, the interiority of this character. So he does a great job bringing it to life. Yeah, a big fan of Luke, a big fan of all these characters. I think they're all pretty iconic. Uh, as it relates to the Mary Sue conversation, I also understand Mary Sue to be a definition applied to. Uh, someone, a character, generally, I mean, it's generally used to describe women, which is uh, part of what uh, I'm getting to, uh, as uh, characters that just have an innate ability to do impressive things without training, which, frankly, yeah, if we're going to cast a light on the kind of hypocrisy of this sort of criticism of Ray in these sequels, I, I think the best way to do it is by illuminating that Luke Skywalker never finishes his Jedi training. Like, how, if if we are to term people Mary Sue on the the grounds that they didn't complete training but are innately good at it, uh, then it it applies to both. But I think it's also kind of a functionally useless term, and it is especially uh, you know easily applied uh, in a misogynistic way as we see in this scenario. So uh, yeah, I think I mean it's also a thing where like it, you can't really ultimately be that critical of all of all of like those flaws of this story in the end, because they are so like Jungian and archetypal and like uh Joseph Campbelly, but also a part of it is like, we, we're, we're told at one point it's midi chlorians that uh, determine that when everyone is related to someone who happens to be like a Sith Lord or a Jedi. And like, so like, let's calm down folks. I mean, as far as criticizing Ray in particular, uh, I think that that's, that's very stupid uh, because it, it could just as easily apply to Luke and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I think I'd echo a lot of what you said, Dave. And I think um, I don't really think of Ray as like a Mary Sue, not to go down the Ray uh, rabbit hole too much on this episode. But I think for me, it's like issues of writing and not necessarily like, I don't know, that term I feel like, you know, it can be incredibly misogynistic. And that's the way that people use it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we've seen incredibly toxic behavior in the Star Wars community for a while now. And so I think, yeah, I think you can sort of think of Luke in like a similar-ish light, especially for, I don't know, when I try, when I think of episode four, A New Hope, I try to think of it in just the context of 1977. 
Um, and I guess, you know, it's sequels. I mean, there's so much that's been retconned, added to. We've seen Luke 30 years later. Um, and so I think Star Lucasfilm and Disney have done a lot to kind of like mess with kind of how Star Wars is. And I think how pretty perfect this film is. Um, and so I think Luke is the hero that's needed for the story. And it's not trying to be, it's trying to be just a fantasy space opera with big themes, big emotions. And I think from that, we get some really amazing, outstanding characters, <laughs> surprisingly good writing from George Lucas, uh, which is, we, as we talked about in our prequel episode, uh, I guess a year plus ago, um, we don't always get. So I think it's just an interesting, Luke is a really interesting, I think, combination of um, the way the movie was made, Mark Hamill's performance, and just, you know, really being the vehicle that the story needs to make things happen. But since it's such an engaging performance um, and such an endearing character in this fantasy setting, I think he can really get away with it. Yeah, I, I agree all around. I think that Luke is a vehicle for the viewer, right? So if you were thrust into this universe, wouldn't you want to go through training, go through everything that happens in Empire, and then be able to kick some serious ass in the final, like the third movie? I don't, I don't think that it's unreasonable to, to assume that training and practice happens between films just because it happens off screen doesn't mean it you know, it hasn't happened. I do think in some cases that's lazy writing when they don't let us see that, but I don't think it's, you know, necessarily always needed. Um, but goddamn, the, the people who are just like tearing Ray apart for the same things that we see happen to Luke, it's, it's unreal. And, and it makes me wonder like, what is so special and special parentheses derogatory about Star Wars and Star Wars fans that there is so much toxicity. And this is not to say that there's not toxicity in other fandoms, because of course there is, but it just seems so loud and so present no matter what in the Star Wars fandom to the point where like you and McGregor right after the first two episodes of Kenobi aired, we're like, Hey, uh, leave our actors alone this is disgusting stop it like how is it so prevalent in this fandom and maybe it's just that i'm ignorant to to others but it just feels like especially heightened in star wars i think a lot of that just from my perspective as a lifelong star wars fan goes back to how treasured these um you know a new hope empire strikes back and return of the jedi are in like pop culture canon for millions of people. And so I think anything touching the periphery of that, I think for a lot of common sense fans, like people who are generally have common sense and are not racist or misogynist will like trigger them. And I just think the political climate of the past, you know, five plus years, I think has brought out a lot of toxicity in people who otherwise kept it hidden or discovered, you know, um, I think a hatred for this, um, I mean, Ryan Johnson, if we're going to, we're talking about The Last Jedi and toxicity, he's somebody who a lot of people don't like because of his politics um, and the politics that they perceive were put to the movies. And I think, you know, Star Wars, and I maybe we're going to talk about this, has always been political. I mean, you know, it's Empire versus Rebels. Like, it's a military political conflict. Um, and I think a lot of people see America as the Rebels, you know, 
empire as these other figures when really that wasn't George Lucas's intention. So I think it's like people not quite realizing what the original intention of the films were and in their mind, it was this one way. And so people do it differently or imposing quote unquote imposing ideology. I think just there's a lot that Disney has done that's triggered people. And also Disney's just under fire in general. Like they can't do anything. They do one thing, the left rebels, they do one you know, reverse the right rebels. It's like all, they're really kind of fucked of making any decision about anything with like real choices or real kind of feelings, emotions, and real experiences that people go through. Yeah, I feel like the only unifying factor in Star Wars in the past couple of years is Baby Yoda. I think like that might be it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I don't know. There's a lot of complex reasons, Connor, as you just stated. I think uh, it's ultimately something that is, uh, I don't know, it's kind of, it's, in a lot of ways, it's pretty simple, I think. I think this is just something that meant a tremendous amount of, it meant, it meant a tremendous amount to a lot of people, to millions of people who all perceive themselves as experiencing it kind of like uniquely. Like, I mean, obviously there's like Star Wars fandom that is very community-based. Um, there are plenty of people that like cosplay together. There are conventions and all sorts of things. Uh, people that embrace and share the same material. There are people that don't gatekeep Star Wars and there are some great Star Wars fans. Uh, but I do think that the, there is definitely a faction uh, of extremism within it. Yeah, that it, it sort of, it, it treats something that is ultimately kind of like borderline universal pop culture at this point as like uniquely precious to them in a way that they resent uh, changing or being reshaped in any way. And and ultimately is, is kind of rooted in a fear of, of changing social attitudes and times, which is sewn into a lot of what has come uh, after the original trilogy uh, in connection and conjunction with Star Wars on the whole. So I don't know. I yeah, I, I think people bring a lot of very complicated motives to something that uh, the, the people engaging in this kind of thing bring a lot of their own really complicated and motives that they should investigate uh, just for their own good uh, of themselves. But it's ultimately, I think, a pretty simple thing that everybody kind of adored this and it's felt, it felt special to everyone, which in a way is a great thing. And why this first film, for example, is so unique, as, as are the... Pretty much uh, all the uh, most of these movies, but yeah, there's there's I guess just something about them that can't allow it to be uh, influenced by anything else, even though that's inevitable. I don't know. It's don't just know. like there's a lot of horrible Star Wars stuff. I kind of just want to talk about the good Star Wars stuff, the fun stuff. But go on. Uh, we we will. I, I promise. <laughs> but it's just like, how are you able to accept? aliens but not black people in your story like that's unreal like that's really what the criticism was immediately in the the two first episodes of kenobi was because of moses ingram and her character was fucking bad as shit like she was awesome when those first two episodes aired and continued to be so and you know it's not just Moses Ingram but it's also um John Boyega it's Kelly Marie Tran it's everything that they dealt with um so this racism is just like so prevalent in the fandom and I think that that is something that Disney Lucasfilms is is trying to do better with i mean you know you have everything that john boyega and kelly marie tran have said that like this was terrible like it was not just the fans it was the director being racist or or you know doing these things it was not a good time and you did nothing for me so i think that they're trying 
trying to take a hard look and say, we've done some wrong. Let's try to find ways to fix it. So that's why they did this, like having you and McGregor come out and say like, this isn't all right. They've made so many different social media posts and they're also starting to retcon a few things that have existed in Star Wars canon to be like, okay, we know that this wasn't all right. Um, I don't know if they'll ever fix the fucking um, Phantom Menace with all like the trade federation and all that bullshit. But what they have done um, at the the very least in the Mandalorian, the the Tusken Raiders. So we knew them um, in A New Hope as like the sand people. And when you watch it, like it is, you know, it it really feels like they're trying to not mimic, but sort of um, embody a lot of indigenous culture uh, or like uh, assumptions and prejudice based on indigenous culture with the sand people, with the Tuscan Raiders. And so what they've done in the Mandalorian is actually given them so much more meaning and backstory and Troy Kotzer, the um, the actor who won Best Supporting Actor for Coda, um, he was actually hired by Disney and Lucasfilm to create an entire language for the Tusken Raiders. It's sign language, and we learned this in The Mandalorian, which is so interesting. And I'm fascinated that this is the 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 realm that they the, the route that they took, and it's not perfect, but I think it's one way of kind of writing or wrong is that enough well i think when thinking about you know kind of taking it back to star wars 1977 i think it's tough to like what do you do when you're you know you have this money from fox and you're filming in london and there are i don't know just not a whole lot of actors of color who were available in 1977 london film scene who were kind of you know within the fox network and so i think it's good that like these strides are being made because this film is like very white, but I don't know. When I look at it, it's like, well, that was just like 1977. And it's, we let's like make progress now. But I, I don't know, in my mind, I feel like I don't, I personally don't feel the need to like overthink that part of it. Cause that's just what filming was in 1977 London when the score, I guess like 1976 when this movie was made. So yeah, sure. Let's see that. You know, I think I thought that was one of the better parts of book of Boba Fett was the Tuscan Raiders um, and kind of that portrayal. So yeah, sure. Let, let's kind of flesh out and bring in some more modern sensibilities with when we're revisiting kind of parts of the original trilogy and parts of A New Hope. I've got to fully admit, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Uh, I just, I, was, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I've, not, I've not seen most of this material, but, uh, and I'm not kept up with the Star Wars fandom, so I really can't speak to his toxicity or anything. Sounds sounds like a whole can of worms to me. <laughs> it definitely is a whole can of worms. And, you know, I think when you watch A New Hope, it, the the whiteness of it doesn't surprise me is something you see always but the when you have characters embodying um like villain or villainess type people and they resemble people that are of color or are familiar i think that's the problem right and so having the the tuscan raiders just first of all be more fleshed out in general i think is you know a, a great thing to do because you're expanding the universe and that's <laughs> exactly what you want to do um but having someone like troy kotzer who he even said he's like this is not going to be based on american sign language i'm going to create something entirely different i think that that's really that's really rad 
But other things that the <laughs> Star Wars has started to retcon that existed in A New Hope, um, I have in my notes here, I was so angry that they gave um, Ben Solo the name Ben because it was like, did Leia ever even meet uh, Obi-Wan? Like, did they ever have any contact for him to be an important enough figure to name her son after him? Turns out, yes. And uh, I think that, that, I don't know if that was like a major point of why the plot of Kenobi was what it was, but I, I think I appreciated it and they answered a lot of questions for folks. I mean, in returning to A New Hope, it's it's kind of the inciting incident of the movie, her sending an urgent message to Ben Kenobi. Uh, she knows him as Obi-Wan. Uh, he is hiding on Tatooine uh, as Ben Kenobi, which is what a disguise, just changing your first name. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think it's pr- probably just part of the grand tradition of uh, a family lineage that uh, is kind of, scatter shot throughout all of star wars i suppose yeah i mean it just it was something that never made any sense and i think that they actually like threw around having ray be a kenobi uh like seriously they, they, they were like maybe that's the route we go and for some reason they didn't um but having uh obi having ben and leia actually meet when leia is 10 years old and then for to have a whole adventure really adds so much more meaning to her actually reaching out to to obi-wan and and naming her son eventually after him because it like it still didn't make sense did i can't even remember in the movie in a new hope are there any moments between alec guinness and carrie fisher no <laughs> I think she sees him killed. <laughs> I suppose that's about it. <laughs> right? So it really makes no sense. I'm glad that it does now. Okay. So the last things that I really wanted to talk about myself when it comes to A New Hope is what makes this movie so special? What makes it so legendary that it gets two sequels? Well, two original sequels and then everything else that comes afterwards. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about Luke. Of course, his character is something that makes this movie special. I think it's really like, you know, a combination of um, a lot of different things. The characters, the setting uh, I have here to hit the desert um, (laughs) theme, uh, Tatooine. So I I learned doing a little bit of research that um, George Lucas had it be a desert planet because um, he didn't want to film in a jungle, which is what Tatooine was supposed to be. So God bless, we get one of the most iconic openings and planets because of George Lucas uh, not wanting to to deal with um, the deep jungle. I mean, I I, I can't imagine it as anything else. Um, but other than, you know, the, 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 the planets, so the, the environment, the setting, the characters, I also think John Williams plays a really big part. That man is unmatched when it comes to his scores. Um, personal favorites of mine, obviously, um, Leia's theme, Tatooine in the Binary Sunset, the Imperial March. Those are some of the things that make this movie so special. Um, but what about you guys? In your notes, you had a question of, is this movie as successful without John Williams and his score? And I think that's a really great question because 
Star Wars feels like it's firing on all cylinders. And the music definitely adds this space opera feel, which I think, you know, I mean, Star Wars is an amalgamation of so many types of cinema and TV and, you know, just entertainment um, that George Lucas was inspired by growing up in his adulthood. So I really think the music just really elevates this film to like another level, especially if we think about, you know, Sam, you just named some of the most iconic movies songs ever in history. And they're all just in this one movie and originate from it. So it's, you know, it's, you know, Star Wars is an incredibly iconic movie. And I think a lot of the reason why it's one part of the secret sauce is John Williams music is kind of um, sometimes music can be incredibly heavy handed and trying to tell an audience what to feel. But I think John Williams is usually pretty good at not having that feel heavy handed, but still having the music inform what's happening throughout the movie and throughout a scene. Yeah. It's a defining feature of it for sure. I suppose as far as other things that make this movie um, unique and special is uh, just the performances. Everybody really elevating the material. Everybody really commits to their characters. I mean, uh, uh, Ford, Ford, I think, can be uh, a little up and down in his career. But uh, I mean, embodying Han Solo or embodying someone like Indiana Jones, he's on fire. That's like the perfect place for him to be. Hamill, as we've spoken about before, brings a real charm to it. Uh, Carrie Fisher brings such a, like a strength and capability to Princess Leia, which is also on the page, which is makes her character really great. Like one of the most badass sci-fi heroines of all time, right next to like Ellen Ripley, like really, really up there. The mystery of the Sith versus the well, it's not even really that developed in this first one. It's just sort of like it is kind of just framed as Empire versus Jedi's, who are sort of the peacekeepers, uh, who are in, working sort of in the middle ground between. Well, really working with the uh, the rebellion, but lays everything out really interestingly. And I mean, like the visual language of this film is incredible. Also, uh, the way that like the film starts, like, I can't think of a better way to introduce an audience to this world sort of opening shot with the pan down from the uh, the text crawl, which occurs first, onto these three planets and the rebel blockade runner just soaring away uh, in retreat from the uh, imposing and giant Star Destroyer, really illustrating like the size and power of each individual component of this conflict. And also just really love that uh, the opening text crawl was, it's something that feels like a little bit like, I almost feel like it feels slow like a kind of slow way to start a film now. I mean, not, I mean, it's, it's compensated by the giant blaring and star Wars logo flying backward, but then the crawl starts going in the text and it, it, you know, it feels like necessary exposition, but it does feel a little bit like long at times, almost, even though it's short paragraphs. Interestingly enough though, it was much, much longer. Uh, George Lucas submitted the text that he had written to, of the opening crawl to his uh, director friend, Brian De Palma who, upon reviewing it, went back to Jordan and said, like, look, this is preposterous. You need to trim this down. This is going to take way too long. So apparently, at least for A New Hope, the uh, opening crawl has been edited and uh, rewritten by director Brian De Palma, which is pretty great. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, the collaborative nature of this film, I mean, it's, it's legendary stories from behind the scenes, all the struggles and, you know, Lucas being close with Francis Ford Coppola and, like, really his friends coming together to help. I mean, his wife, Marsha Lucas, edited Star Wars and a lot of people in the know say that it was her who saved Star Wars and editing that a lot of it was kind of slow it was meandering uh, and then when she kind of got a hold of it and pieced this really tight film together so it, I'm really I think it's amazing that this film came together as amazing as it did especially for the time 1977 you know the special effects 
um, or just out of this world. And of course, they've been retouched <laughs> to greater and lesser oh, yes. extents over the years. But the stuff, generally the practical stuff doesn't have to be retouched. That still looks incredibly solid. Um, I mean, the Death Star Trench Run. I think is a huge standout moment. Like flying in space just looks incredible. And all the way the pieces move together, the miniatures they had to build, coupled with, as we know, Williams' music, the performances, the tension ramping up. This movie really knows when to hit the accelerator and then when to slow down a little bit. And the, the pace of this film, I think, is, is just extraordinary. Um, like I said earlier, yeah. kind of firing on all cylinders. Yeah, it really, I mean, it establishes everything really quickly. Most of the time with like, smaller action sequences and then just kind of like builds into the first confrontation and journey through the Death Star. And then like the last like 20 minutes is the conclusion of the movie. Like the last act, it flies by. Really impressive that it pulls that off. And just like also really well, yeah, really well structured, brilliantly edited, uh, very, very great sense of pacing. And uh, also, yeah, the speaking to that collaborative spirit, I mean, there were a lot of changes that were made by like, crew that were working on the film to uh, Lucas's original vision. There were actors that improvised lines and things like that to bring their own color and texture to their characters. So it did really feel like just sort of like a, a, an open sandbox for a lot of very creative and talented people to sculpt this thing together. And I know I've already talked about this, but that opening sequence of Princess Leia, you know, being confronted with Darth Vader and blowing up Alderaan like that has always held a lot of meaning but now that we've actually seen Alderaan we've gotten to be there for a little bit we've gotten to know it more um in the Kenobi series like it just hurts that much more to see it um and what a wild way to open up your film by blowing up essentially what looks like earth blowing up her that's that's one way to get going and to establish Darth Vader as a villain though you know something that I I think maybe a little bit differently now because of everything that's come out since but I yeah like Vader is terrifying but you don't really get that for like the first two movies really like not even an empire because you see that he's like He's a little bitch boy for Palpatine, but it's like what has come after. And, and, and you know, even in um, Return of the Jedi, I think you see him maybe not be terrifying, but take a stand, grow up a little bit, go back to the light side and, um, you know, sacrifice himself. But, you know, it is a little terrifying in that beginning sequence. You're like, who the fuck is this dude wearing this costume, sounding like that, putting his hands on his hips like this? blowing up a planet he means business i mean vader's of course one of the most iconic fictional characters ever and i think this film what i going back appreciated was you know the idea that like he's caught up in this bureaucracy like i love the scene where they're what i just thought the imperial boardroom scene where you have all the admirals all the generals together tarkin Peter Cushing, right? Yeah, a great performance from a legendary actor. Um, and talking about, you know, one of the adversaries, oh, you know, Vader's leash. And I think his role is just so interesting of like, he is at kind of the whim of this larger bureaucracy. And I think his, if we're just looking at this film in the context that it was released, pairing really nicely with Obi-Wan Kenobi, who's like, these are two people of an old ancient religion. People don't believe in the force anymore. And these really feel like the two pillars of what was left of 
kind of magic in the world. And for me, it really feels like Star Wars is the return of magic to this universe. Now with Luke, kind of the training from Obi-Wan and Yoda, the inspiration and the bloodline from Vader really feels like the way that the Force can return and peace return to this universe, which is, of course, a really you know core themes of Star Wars, you know, kind of cutting to the heart of it. I like that. The return of magic is very sweet. What else about this movie do you like so much that makes it, you know, legendary? Just so many small moments. The introduction to the Millennium Falcon as it first takes off. The uh, the simplicity of the lightsaber battle between uh, Obi-Wan and Vader, because it is really kind of like more of a vehicle for exposition. As, as we've talked about, the, the canyon run, which is just jaw-dropping as far as practical effects are concerned. Yeah, I guess just like I said before, yeah, it's it's just a whole bunch of very considered and well-structured ingredients thrown into uh, into a big pot and stewed together by some uh, incredible set designers, some some very interesting writing, some very cool uh, creative choices on the parts of the actors. Uh, just time and place also. I mean, you know, this really kind of like took hold and rooted sci-fi within like the concept of American pop culture fascination once again uh, in the way that it had been sort of like in the 1950s and early 1960s. It's just it's just like a maelstrom of very, very awesome elements. I think I respect it more every time I go back and watch it. I think by now it is what I would say. I, I consider the quote unquote, and this is a very popular, unpopular opinion, I'm sure. I consider it kind of the best Star Wars movie. Uh, perhaps even more so than uh, popular consensus of Empire, which is also fantastic. But I think this one just has so much more range. It's so much bigger uh, while still being introductory. And it's it's also extremely fun. Like this movie just flies by with a lot of fun moments. There's a lot of humor. There's a lot of life to these characters that is something beyond uh, maybe some of the more dour material that we experience through Lucas later on uh, when he's sort of like doing it by himself. It just seems like, yeah, it feels like there was an excited spirit of collaboration that that was involved in the production of this movie that is kind of essential to elevating it to its status. It probably would not have been the, like the iconic pop culture material that it is and the legacy film series that it is were it not for just such a, a spirit of investment and and being a part of this moment uh, in, in terms of film history and in terms of making something really unique. And I always appreciate sort of you know, uh, we've been talking about how it is, I guess, quote unquote, simple. Lucas taking inspiration from the hero's journey with Luke and Kurosawa being, and other things. Uh, <laughs> Kurosawa and so Luke being this, you know, taking Luke being this boy who's on you know, his way to becoming a man and learning the ways of the Force. So I think it's just these really simple archetypes that have resonated, and that's what allows these stories to resonate. This is why we still read stories from the ancient world that have similar themes with Star Wars in 1977. And, uh, you know, newer stories today. I was also struck watching it this time because a few weeks ago we talked about uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Uh, and the book Dune was, of course, a huge inspiration for Luke at Desert Planet, Tatooine, Arrakis. Uh, there is spice in the Star Wars universe. So sometimes Lucas lifts kind of, you know, the five-finger discount, I think, from some of his inspirations. And so I think it's interesting now as an, you know, as an adult looking back and now it's like, oh, you know, Dune the book influenced Star Wars and Star Wars influenced uh, both of the Dune movies, but I think kind of more specifically the newer one. And so it's kind of funny of where the snake kind of eating its own tail. That's just one thing that I was thinking of, of like the influence that this movie has. I think just it you can't calculate 
how many products, how many people, how many lives and, you know, that it's touched. And for me, you know, I remember watching the special edition VHS on my, we had this tiny little TV in our kitchen uh, when I was growing up and just that just being on like all the time, uh, my dad and I. So I think when I think of Star Wars, I think of, you know, we talked at the beginning about toxicity. For me, Star Wars is about people coming together, whether it's like within my own life, I feel like Star Wars has that presence. I feel like Sam, you and I talk about Star Wars on like a weekly basis. <laughs> so when I think about Star Wars, that's kind of like, and this will be the genesis point of bringing people together through this fairly straightforward story, just told you know, expertly. Yeah. It's, great. it's a very great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Star Wars in a very short amount of time has come to mean quite a lot to me. And in a lot of ways, Connor, it's because it's, it's helped build friendships that, you know, might have already existed, but has, has made them stronger, like the two of us and talking about it. Also with Joel, our colleague at work all the time too. Something that is really unique to only A New Hope is that it is the beginning, the middle of an end and an end of a franchise, right? It is a standalone movie. You didn't have to have more. You didn't have to have anything before it. Um, and it's the only one that gets that um, credential. And, and that's important, right? And obviously it was, it was you know, they didn't know they were going to do all of these movies afterwards. So it was always going to be that way, but it makes it special nonetheless. Anything else about... A new hope. What this is already a popularly lobbied criticism against the uh, the plot of the film, but of course, uh, it could have been a five minute movie if the Empire had rightly shot upon that escape pod. Because, like, even after it goes off, they're like, "This is no life forms on this thing. Why would we shoot it? It's probably an accident." While they're like, Darth Vader is like scrambling to like choke people on the ship, being like, "Where are the plans?" It's like this probably could have been over pretty fast and. Uh, ben Kenobi would have been an unknown name to all of us, which, uh, you know, of course, would have been terrible. Uh, and we wouldn't have gotten the mo- film series. But it, it's a, kind of a logical thing where it's like, we're sieging the ship and they just fired something out of it. Yeah, probably ought to blow that up. <laughs> yeah, life forms or not, there's still probably something on there that like might be important. Yeah, this is like a world where droids are conscious things that can carry like digital information. Like, Life, quote unquote, physiological life form or not, if there's a droid on there, that's going to be and is proven to be kind of an oversight if you don't act on it. (laughs) Not to get too pushing glasses up against my face. I think that that moment, even maybe this is a retcon, but I think speaks to a contrast between the Empire and the Rebellion where, you know, the Rebellion who values hope and values justice views droids kind of more like people not always that's definitely more played up later in the franchise but uh the empire just does not see any value like or view these creatures as sentient or these you know kind of robots as sentient so i feel like that's a little bit of a deep cut and probably not part of the original script but i think when re-watching that scene it's like oh they don't of course why would a droid droids you know they just whatever we don't we don't even think of them as being really kind of valuable right but they're also like living computers that can carry information around like r2d2 and c3po have like sort of done war crimes together so like they definitely get up to shenanigans <laughs> no matter what if we want to talk about war crimes in the show star wars rebels there's a an r2 unit named chopper or astromech droid named chopper who i think has killed approximately ten thousand people <laughs> if you count uh ships that he sabotaged and other, there's like really funny memes and posts about just how many people this, this one droid has killed. 
It goes from like 300 direct kills to like up to 10,000 if you count sabotage. <laughs> wow. Um, there's this really beautiful moment in Kenobi where you're seeing Leia at, at 10 years old and, and how she's already the, the, the woman we know and love. And her cousin is like, why are you being nice to a droid? Cause this, uh, C3 unit came over to her, gave her something. She's like, thank you. And she's like, cause it's the right thing to do. But the cousin was like, that's stupid. They're not humans. They don't feel They're like mm, back off. So there, there definitely is something to what you were saying, Connor. One shout out that I want to make is to this person on TikTok called the struggling adult. Um, they have done uh, multiple parts of a new hope of almost all star Wars, where it's just them responding, reacting to things that are happening in the movie. And it is one of the funniest things that I have ever seen. And I go back to it a lot just to laugh. So God bless to this person, please never stop. They've also done the twilight series. Should you be interested? Yeah. Those videos are captivating as hell. They're very good. (laughs) Uh, I will quickly add, uh, speaking of war crimes or going back to war crimes, um, I do have to admit and eat some crow that I have been in the past uh, in an episode, perhaps that you can go back and listen to evidence of uh, have been uh, definitely guilty of gatekeeping this original trilogy a little bit, uh, especially as concerns uh, the prequels that followed it. I think that that's uh, a little bit stupid on my part. I think that if people enjoy those movies, that's great. I will say again that I don't, but if, if people do, that's that's really great. I, I really don't mean to be a dick about Star Wars. I really don't know that much about it anymore. I really like the original trilogy and that was just sort of where I fell off with it. But it is, Connor, as you mentioned before, and Sam, as you've laid out with your enthusiasm, it is really great to see that it is binding communities together in uh, genuine enthusiasm that isn't, you know, uh, toxic screenwriting uh, criticisms as a mass excuse for misogyny or whatever the fuck. It's just really exciting to see that outside of that faction of the Star Wars fan, of the toxic fashion, uh, faction of its fandom, that it has united multiple generations and continues to, uh, even while producing new material. So uh, I have to say, uh, I, I, I will respectfully be quiet about uh, the prequels from now on, but ultimately at the end of the day, it was just, it's an inspiring franchise. And um, one that really hooked my interest uh, via this film and via the films that followed when I was like as young as like seven years old. And if that's still happening for people today, that fucking rules. So uh, thumbs up. Yay. As long as the prequels lead people to the original trilogy. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. where they start. Just uh, do do whatever you're going to do. Have your journey. Have your journey. (laughs) Pick your Star Wars and love it. Um, All right. Well, that was a new hope, everybody. I hope you enjoy this conversation about a, a classic we all know and love. Um, anything else we want to, to mention to chat about before we see you later? Well, I suppose I would like to suggest that you look into your state's local abortion fund. And uh, if you have the means to do so, make a donation. I, uh, I don't want to elaborate too much more on the, on the subject other than that. Uh, just, uh, yeah, if, if you can, uh, do your part. Yeah. Do your part, be kind, and vote for people who make a fucking difference. <laughs> Great. Well, everybody, you can catch us on our socials, Butter With That, on Instagram, Butter With That One, on Twitter, Butter With That on Facebook, and Butter With That Podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. 
And you know what, folks? Have a good whatever. Bye. Damn it. I was trying to think of a Star Wars line and I can't. This has been a Movie John podcast.